0: Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. It's brought to you by Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and Moneywise magazines. I'm Faith Glasgow, I'm the editor of Money Observer, and I'm joined today by Deputy Editor Carl Caldwell and Theodore Diloff of Interactive Investor. We also welcome Thomas Brown of Premier Mighton, and we'll be chatting to him shortly. But as usual, we start off with the latest news and developments likely to concern fund investors. Kyle, what has caught your eye?
1: There was a study by Octopus Investments which found that over the past three months, UK equity income fund managers have been reducing exposure to the two oil majors, that's Royal, Dutch Shell and BP. Octopus is a research found that in March, 65% of UK equity income funds held Shell in their top 10 holdings. But by May, that proportion had fallen to 43% of funds. And then similarly for BP, between March and May, um, the number of UK equity income funds with BP as a top 10 holding fell from 61% to 43%.
0: Have they all been driven by the collapse in oil prices earlier this year, would you say?
1: Yeah, that, that has been a big factor. And indeed, the big drop in oil prices was the driver behind Shell cutting its dividends for the first time since the Second World War. So, on the one hand, some fund managers will have moved to reduce their holding, um, given that it's now less attractive from an income perspective. BP, however, has not cut its dividends, but um, fund managers seem to be signalling that a cut could, could be on the cards and um, have moved to reduce their exposure ahead of that potentially taking place. Another reason why both oil stocks have um, slid out the top 10 holdings of equity income funds is down to the huge decline in both their share places since um, the start of the year. As a result, um, the value of Fund Manager's holdings relative to their other holdings has has declined. And this, of course, reduces their
0: overall weighting in the portfolio. And presumably, unlike the other holdings in, in these funds, they've just not recovered nearly so well in line with the broader market.
1: That's correct, uh, Faith, yeah, and um, yeah, the sentiment towards oil stocks is uh, very low at the moment.
0: There was also the Link Dividend Monitor report for the second quarter of 2020. Carl, it would be an understatement to say that it made bleak reading for income-seeking investors. I couldn't
1: agree more with that, Faith. A total of 176 UK companies have slashed or cancelled their dividends in the second quarter of the year, and um, this equates to two-thirds of all the companies that typically make payments. 61 companies have um, increased their payments over that quarter. There's an old stock market saying two views make a market and this seems to be the case at the moment for the outlook for dividends. Some commentators are taking a pessimistic view at at the moment on the the months ahead and for 2021, cautioning that even in an optimistic scenario whereby there's a a U-shaped recovery and the recession is not severe, then um, companies will not be rushing to uh, reinstate the dividend payments. On the other hand, I've also seen um, the opposite argument made, that companies will be keen to return to the dividend register as soon as possible to satisfy income-hungry investors, especially with the backdrop of um, grotesquely low savings rates. What, What side of the fence would you sit on with this, Faith?
0: Well, I don't see a rush back to generous dividend payments by many companies. I think that some, some of them may be taking the opportunity to recalibrate what had become over generous payouts and just, you know, to make them a bit more sustainable than they'd become. But other companies will just be feeling cautious about the prospects for a return to normal levels of business and worried about possibility of, of further significant lockdowns, I think. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, there's the uncertainty of Brexit looming at the end of the year. So I think a lot of companies are going to prefer to hold some cash in the medium term rather than returning to um, generous payouts for investors. But I think there will be other companies, most obviously, the small number of key stocks for whom dividend reliability is just so core to shareholder interest that they just won't want to prolong the agony. What about you, Carl? What do you think? I'm
1: on the same side of the fence as you, Faith. Um, I also agree that I don't see a, a rush back to um, generous dividend payments by many companies. And to sort of and to add to all the points that you've made, there's also a lack of competition, isn't there? I mean, savings rates are dire. Um, you've got the bond market as, a, as another option. Um, equities are a, lo- a lot more attractive than bonds from an income perspective at the moment, even when um, yields, are, you know, ex- even when dividends are lower than they, than they have been for a couple of years. I think also on that basis. I mean, you know, equities are, are the best best place in town. So on those grounds as well, I just don't see the real need as well for um, for companies to, to to rush back and pay high levels of dividends.
0: No, absolutely. I think if they do go back, there's a reasonable argument for them for for them paying lower, more sustainable levels on that on on those grounds. That there is a lack of competition generally. Anyway, thank you very much, Kyle, for um, rounding up the news for this uh, past fortnight or so. Now, we'll move on to welcome our special guest for the show, Thomas Brown, who co- co-manages Mighten European Opportunities. This fund was the first-time winner of the European Gong in the 2020 Money Observer Fund Awards. And it has to be said, it has done remarkably well recently. It returned 23% over the last year to the end of June, I think. Uh, notwithstanding the market plunge in March. And in contrast, the Investment Association's Europe ex UK sector, where it lives, has just scraped a couple of percentage points of growth over that period. So, Thomas, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. And I'm first wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your perspective on why investors seem to be so wary of Europe at the moment. In the last Investment Association update on fund flows in, in May, Europe sat right at the bottom of the sector tables with out, outflows of more than £450 million. Pounds. So my question is really, why is it so widely avoided by investors? Is it, is it fair to characterise Europe as stodgy and dull as I've seen.
2: Although I haven't s- sort of seen your 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 data set on fund flows, I think it's fair to say that Europe's actually been sort of out of favour for years now. When we came to launch the fund at the end of 2015, we you know we went on the road and saw lots of existing Martin clients and said, would they be interested in investing in a new European fund? And we were almost uniformly told that investing in Europe was a definite way to lose money. Europe was uninvestable. I mean, you'll remember back then at the end of 2015, you know, we had uh, lots of elections during 2016. There was Brexit risk, there was Italy, Italy going bust risk. There are all sorts of things that people were really worried about and people were really negative on, on Europe, both back then and then actually quite consistently ever since. Now, we have to remember that, 2016 was a, a great year for European equities. They they nearly mm. rose 20% in sterling terms, and then they did about 15% in uh, in 2017. So, I think the the, the, the the sort of the general backdrop of people being negative o, o, on Europe is is not necessarily a a, a terrible env- environment to to generate subsequent market returns. So I'm not I'm not that's not something that that really concerns me mm. coming on to sort of why people tend to avoid europe obviously this is a this is a UK perspective wouldn't we, uh, we we sit in the UK and people have a lot of assets in the uk because they're based in the in the UK and i, I can sort of understand the historical liability angle where people said you know their, their assets are to fund liabilities in the future the liabilities are likely to be in sterling so the assets should be in sterling to say so you've got less currency risk but i think Over the last, let's say 40 years since that rule of thumb was created, I think we've had so much convergence in economies and decreasing volatility of currencies that doesn't, Mm. that doesn't really stack up as a great reason to keep all your money in your domestic market. And I think it's wiser to go where the, where the interesting ideas are. Now, if you look at sort of Europe, um, as an economic block, it has GDP of around about 14 trillion euros. So about five, five and a half times as big as the UK. Now, while mm. the UK has got a much more developed stock market, so a greater proportion of the of the GDP, if you like, is available to invest in than Europe. You know, that's still a massive gap in terms of the, 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 the relative size of, of the opportunities. Mm. And that's why I think it, it, it's unwise to just look at the UK. And I think Europe's actually a really great hunting ground for, for european stocks just to finish it the way people think about europe is to say well i've got my uk allocation and then i'll think about international and they'll compare us to the us with all those exciting fang names which uh, take all the headlines or they'll look at emerging markets with very high mm. normal gdp growth rates and against that environment maybe people could say well europe does look a bit dull you know the economy is mm you know, not a massive grower over the last decade. And I think it is fair to say that economic growth hasn't been hasn't been great in in, in the last decade. And we don't necessarily expect it to accelerate it in in the next decade. But the Mm. stock market is not the economy, you know, the European stock market has got lots of global businesses in it. And then secondly, not all companies are the index. So I mean, to take a proper long-term view on, on Europe, if you look at um, how the, the FTSE all shares has, has returned over the century, so from the start of 2000, returns are um, round about plus 200%, which is pretty respectable I'd say for 20 years. Mm-hmm. The European index has actually returned something closer to 240%. So to say Europe is really boring and you should have all your money in the UK is it's not borne out by the historical numbers. And, mm-hmm. and again, The companies are not the index. So whereas the index has done well, I think there are some fantastic businesses in Europe. If you're prepared to go digging into that broad continental investment universe, then I, then I think there are some brilliant businesses, but I do understand the stodgy and dull Monica. but I don't think it holds back the opportunity to generate really good returns for, for investors, if you're willing to do the legwork and find a few really great global businesses that, that are there.
0: Which countries and which sectors are you currently finding the best opportunities, would you say?
2: I guess this is, you know, quite consistently for us, just starting with with sectors. We've always been overweight, the healthcare sector and technology sector. I think Europe seems to sort of do healthcare, if you like, really, really well. There are lots of universities doing lots of research and churning out good ideas. And although the wealth isn't growing that rapidly, there is wealth willing to back good ideas. And so there is a lot of, innovation in, in the healthcare space and, and we, we've got strong weighting towards med tech companies in our fund. So we've been consistently overweight over the four and a half years of the fund in, in healthcare. And then on the technology side there are lots of opportunities. You know I think the, the Anglo-Saxon view is very much to look at the, the fangs in the US and you know and them coming to the UK very, very straightforwardly due to the language being common. But there are certain bits of, of sort of technology where language is actually a bit of a barrier. So there are lots of little businesses, well, smaller businesses it, it, sort of in individual countries that are, you know, fantastic, high barriers, good growth rates, you know, just the same as the U.S. neighbors, But they're slightly less well known because they're not these, you know, the dominant me- mega caps of, mm. of the world. We own ASML, which um, is pretty much the biggest company in Europe now. That's a, that's a tech name world leader. It's probably the most prominent example of a brilliant European tech company, but there are a lot, there are lots of good technology names in in Europe. And then on the countryside, we don't really invest down country lines. So we just go where the ideas are. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the stock market, just as in the UK, a company based in Italy might not be a very Italian company, you know, it's an, it's an international company. So we tend not to just focus by sort of doing top down macro allocation there are some countries where we've we've consistently been overweight over over the life of the fund so certain scandinavian countries and and switzerland and somewhere we've been underweight spain and and france but that's not because we have a particular view on one economy versus the other it's we're just chasing the ideas and trying to find the best ideas
1: you mentioned that um you don't invest obviously in countries per se but um i'm sure you also don't invest in acronyms but um i was (laughs) interested to um here your thoughts on Golden, goldman sachs's new acronym the, for european stocks the so-called granolas what did you make of that
2: yeah well so obviously goldman sachs um claimed to have invented the fangs. so they've got good history of inventing good uh, stock market acronyms for those that don't know the granolas is is i think about 13 names if i'm not mistaken and they're actually uh, some some european names and some uk names and we as a predominantly a european fund so a continental european fund Aren't going to like invest in the likes of um, the, the G, GlaxoSmithKline, or um, AstraZeneca, the, 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 the A. So there are a few names that we, we can't invest in. About half of them are sort of the mega cap uh, drug stocks of, of Europe. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we do like the healthcare space, although we think the med tech investment. Opportunities are are better than the than the than than the mega cat drug drugs names. We own ASML. That's uh, that's the A of of granola, but the others the others we we, we 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 don't own. One of the very interesting ones actually, and and this is one of the things that's slightly forgotten about Europe. The L of of granola is is LVMH. So the, the luxury conglomerate that owns Louis Vuitton, um, uh, Hennessy. People are really. Negative, or they, they certainly have the potential to be very negative about, about Europe, as you've said, and as we've seen from, from the recent flows. And commentators are negative on Europe, but then they want a French or Italian handbag and they want a, G- a German car. So, as you look at the, the global stock market, Europe clearly is the big leader in having the best sort of luxury goods names. And those are interesting businesses because. You know, a brand confers a competitive advantage and it has the potential to therefore lead to superior pricing power, very high return on capital, and therefore very good cash flow characteristic. So um, the luxury space is an interesting one. We don't actually own LVMH, but it's, a, but it's one of the real strengths of Europe and a reason why we think people should continue to consider investing in the European market, even if they've chosen to um, write off the economy.
1: I read that you, you think very long term in your approach and you do not react to stock market fads. But I was wondering what you would say is a fad at the moment or has been relatively recently.
2: We get a lot of information flow coming from, from the from the brokers. So we're very well connected through, through Europe and a lot of the brokers are emailing us ideas based based around some sort of nar- narrative on here's our COVID recovery basket. We're not really worrying about how the short-term recovery plays out, as as you um, sort of correctly identified, we are much longer-term investors, so we're not trying to sort of trade our portfolio around COVID and you know whether you know we're going to have a vaccine in the next 2 weeks or whether it's going to take 2 2 years so i think there's a there's a lot of thought really about very short term trading around covid which we think is probably unhealthy but then one of the other aspects is when you think about the increase in sustainable investing over the last few years I think it's a terrific theme. I think there are some fantastic companies. I think it's necessary, of course. And we see some amazing companies in in the European space that that play into that theme and that we've invested in. So we own Siemens Gamesa and Vestas Wind Systems, two big wind turbine manufacturers. We own a company called LEM, which makes current measuring devices where as we move from fossil fuels to, you know, electricity driven economies, it's going to have a massive growth out of it. So there are some terrific companies in, in, in that space. We also see a few companies which are, we think, very expensive. So they've got fantastic valuations and they do something green in inverted commas, but they aren't necessarily fantastic businesses. So you could argue that there's potentially a bit of a fad there. And to give you an example, I mean, it's outside Europe, but I think this really sort of sums up some of what's been going on. There's this electric truck maker, Nikola, which has named itself after Nikola Tesla. So it's supposed to make electric trucks, but as far as I'm aware, they don't actually have a a truck yet. It started the year with a market cap of round about a billion dollars. By June, it had got to sort of 30 billion, so massive increase in the share price. And now it's halved to 14 billion. So I think that might be an indication um, that there's the potential for some sort of short-term faddiness in that that corner of the market.
0: More broadly, what do you think would actually kickstart the European sector's fortunes and influence the way that investors are actually looking at the sector and um, approaching it?
2: a few people have already started thinking about how Europe has handled the, the covid crisis versus the US and that it's likely that Europe is will probably emerge more quickly and more sustainably from lockdown than the US and that can potentially have uh, implications for economic growth rates and um you know the lack of sort of second order effects of the crisis in terms of bankruptcies and you know high levels of Unemployment employment and so on. So mm-hmm. I think that can potentially make Europe look a bit more interesting th- than the US. And then the other thing is, as, as we go through the summer and w- as we get closer to a, a, a US election, it'll be very interesting to see whether the, the, the market sort of thinks about that, because I mean, so far it looks like a Democrat win, but that would mean rising taxes and rising re- regulation, which the US stock market probably wouldn't be crazy about and in the meantime, we've got a president whose one method of campaigning is to increase the hatred amongst his core voters, which could lead to un- unintended consequences in the shorter term. So, you know, we've had the, the Black Lives Matter movement has, has really sort of kicked on this year from where it was last year for tragic reasons, of, of, of course. And you, you, I mean, you just wonder that something really bad could happen in the U.S., And and as the US look less attractive and people look within that non-UK bucket, which I think is Mm. how how people do tend to think about Europe, maybe Europe will will start to look relatively uh, more interesting as as the stability of the region comes, comes foot to the fore.
0: Fascinating thoughts there, Thomas. Thank you very much for your time today. All the best. Thank you. Now we're joined by Theodore Dilov of Interactive Investors Fund Analyst Team. First of all, you've got an update for us on one of the Artemis funds that is held in Interactive Investors Super 60 lineup of preferred funds. What were you going to tell us about that?
3: Artemis Global Income, which follows a value investing philosophy where the managers look for undervalued stocks, has been removed from our preferred list after an extended period of underperformance. This decision has been made in line with our methodology after conducting a formal review of the fund. That included sector and peer group analysis as well as meeting the manager and the team. The manager's investment style has contributed to the fund's comparatively disappointing performance against peers. But more recently, this also has been compounded by some poor stock selection decisions, which led to us losing conviction in the fund.
0: Thank you very much for that update. What have you chosen as far as the fund that you'd like to talk us through this week. Today I'd
3: like to talk about Morgan Stanley Global Brands Equity Income, which is the first new addition since launch of our Super 60 rated list. The fund intends to provide attractive yield of around 4% annually alongside long-term capital growth and some downside protection. The team runs a concentrated portfolio of around 20 to 40 stocks with conservative options overlay to enhance income yield. The investment process is well defined, which means stock needs to tick a number of boxes before being considered for inclusion. These include durability of the franchise sustainable returns on capital, strong revenue streams and organic growth potential as well.
0: And what does
3: it invest in? The fund is not constrained by a benchmark and does not take macro bets. The investment process is purely based on individual stock merits rather than those of any particular sector or region. However, it's unlikely to see more than 25% allocation to any individual industry. The top 10 holdings include Microsoft and SAP, as well as consumer goods leaders like Procter & Gamble and Rekordbank Kaiser.
0: So what in in your view makes it a special fund?
3: Morgan Stanley Global Brands Equity Income takes a more balanced approach towards income and looks for quality companies that would not sacrifice overall performance just for the sake of above market dividend yield. The income generated from the underlying holdings is usually around 2%, but that's further supported by a rather conservative options overlay taken on six major stock indices. The strategy has also demonstrated excellent defensive features with lower drawdown during times of market turbulence, including the most recent sell-off. Performance-wise, year-to-date, the fund delivered 10% against just 3% for the MSCI World benchmark, And over five years, it returned 59% compared to 49% from the index. In addition, risk-adjusted returns have also been very strong.
0: What sort of investors would you think it will particularly suit?
3: I believe this fund could be suitable for investors seeking an attractive field and higher income than the supplied by the core equity funds, while at the same time looking for a good balance between income and capital appreciation.
0: Okay, well, that's great. Thank you very much for coming along to talk to us, Theo. That's all we've got time for for this week. Thanks for listening.